thinking of the last week, what's a story that comes to mind that really makes you think about fear or trust? You know, I, I do, without revealing a ton of details, but I do work with one client and we use the EOS system, entrepreneurial operating system. And we were having what is effectively called the people analyzer discussion. And it was about um, an individual that what may be responding out of fear and has the right values for the organization, but out of pressure, out of the, maybe you got them in the wrong seat. Maybe you've got them, you know, overloaded with things, but their uh, natural response that might come out under that kind of pressure is uh, fear. And what is that, what is that doing? And then ultimately, what are you, what are you responsible for as a manager or leaders in a business in terms of systems to reduce the level of fear, variability, and things like that. And what are you responsible for in terms of coaching, guidance, and behavioral elements? If it's just a you know a younger person that needs development, or even someone that just hasn't they hit a you know, they they worked as a manager and it's now time for them to become a leader. And there's coaching and guidance that you can provide there. I think to me that's the most fresh and relevant as it relates to the topic. And I think it's a good kind of lead in for that overall topic, because you got two real dimensions to fear. Number one is what you feel within yourself. I mean, this is a very individual based thing and you can, like, trust me, I know from I'm 48 years old, I have created more fear-based load for myself than perhaps the external environment could have. So there's the dynamic of internal fear. And then there's the fear that we create together when we come together as a team. And the things that we do or don't do to alleviate that or to build bond, build trust and bring the fear level down, bring, still have the challenge of project issues, but really get everybody to rise to the challenge instead of take the challenge and beat the hell out of people with the fear in hopes that you'll get what you want, which is done on time, done on budget, et cetera. Yeah. A lot of people don't know, Kevin, fear is a productivity killer. And when we say it out loud, everyone just nods their head. Like you just even nodded your head. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people in the audience, if you haven't spent some time or space in the, you know, what drives people, how do you create high performing teams that you might not have just coincidentally been thinking about this, but there's been a lot of research done to show that fear reduces productivity and inhibits people's ability to act. And this is why we see in high performing teams, especially military teams, a lot of conditioning around taking small steps, making small decisions so that people can act and be trained to cope with fear and not be paralyzed by it because there's, there's no benefit. Like in nature, you know, we often see people have like a default of something happens and they go like possum, you know, they play dead, yep. they just freeze up, they stop, they can't do anything. And then other people, something happens in a high fear situation and they become extraordinary. And uh, a lot of people incorrectly think that that's just nature versus nurture. And it's actually conditioning. Well, here's, I'll do you one better. Like, so we're all fighting, we're all triggering by the fight, you know, fight or flight or, you know, hide response overall. But here's the real brain condition, which is to me, one of the keys, I know we're getting, we're getting deep real quick, but one of the keys from a human being perspective, you, your brain is your subconscious brain is, you know, objective. It doesn't matter whether it's actually occurring outside of you, meaning there's a real threat. You're, you know, the tiger, the bear is chasing you. Or if your own brain is generating the fear, meaning I'm thinking about the past, something bad that happened or some relationship that I have, or I'm worried about the future. We got to get this job done, you know, the, the, et cetera. That you're constantly creating a state of high cortisol, high, you know, all the stress responses in yourself. And your brain doesn't know the difference of whether it's happening outside or happening inside. It's just there. And for every single animal, it fight or flight is a natural response. That's good. But if you watch, I mean, I watch my, we got dogs, we got cats, we got horses. If I watch animals, they will get into a response mode and they will come down quickly. They will say, okay, it's safe. No problem. We run the same play in our mind for hours and hours. And it's worse than that. It's not just hours, it's days and days. And then it becomes like a, a just a habitual pattern for you overall. And so that, that's, we've got to find ways both individually and as teams to say, no, short circuit the cycle. Let's take a step back and let's understand exactly what's happening around us. 
make the best of kind of the whatever situations we've got, grab onto the facts that we got, and then uh, move forward. And you will find, I, I think everybody will understand this, you'll find field leadership, especially in construction, that are calm and can um, operate under pressure. I mean, you and I, we could talk last planner and all, all that stuff in terms of getting ahead of the work and constraint and, and stuff like that. But this, this discussion is not about that. The basic personality type is someone that can head into the fire and the flames and go, all right, let me do a ground assessment and, and see what our paths are, what our options are, and take the best one that we've got right now. Yeah. Welcome to the EBFC show, the easier, better for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's show is also sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry and transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone. Check the show notes for more information. Now to the show. Welcome to the show, Kevin Labreck. Kevin, it is my honor to finally have you on the show. You're also an engineer's engineer and you can't do it any other way. You gave me a beautiful set of questions and topics for us to go over on the show, which is, I think it's a guest first. It's probably the first time it's ever happened where the guest was like, this is what I want to definitely hit on. And so I think audience you're in for a treat. And while Kevin is introducing himself and sharing about the first time we met, I want all of you to look in the show notes down below because Kevin has taken the time just in time before this episode got recorded to give all the details about his background, where to find him, links to click to him to get more. And you're going to want to get more. Kevin is somebody that I talk to every year without exception, and we don't get enough of each other. It's so unfortunate that there's this annoying country in between. So we're so far away. He's in Florida. I'm in California and we meet all over the country. I think we've hung out in Detroit most recently in person. Well, well first off, let me say that this is a gift for me. Every time I get to spend with Felipe is just joy in terms of uh, our relationship and uh, our, our journeys together in the lean construction uh, world has just been for me a pleasure. And I, I say that a lot. We'll talk a little bit about how we met. I, I will answer your question just in terms of making people aware of who I am and what I've done and what I do I, without making it as short as possible. But I'm 30 plus years in construction. I started as a carpenter in high school and college doing renovations, remodels to houses, worked for my drafting teacher who had a side business doing that kind of work. And I learned how to work with my hands. Unfortunately, that makes me really cheap on any work that I do on my house. Cause every time I get a price, I get an eye, I can do it. It also means that I've got a ton of projects around the house that to my wife's chagrin aren't quite finished. They're just almost there. So that's the earliest part of my career. I studied to be a civil engineer. It's funny that you call me an engineer's engineer, but I, when I was going through college, I was so worried. I was in physics. I love physics and calculus, but I was so worried that the engineer curriculum was going to bend my brain. So every class I took that was an elective was philosophy, Native American history. I was going deep Eastern religions. I was going as far away from engineering as I could just to blend out the overall experience. So I got lucky. Coming out of college, I got an internship with, at the time, Lyra McGovern Bovis, but ultimately is Lend-Lease now. I spent 14 years on Lend-Lease. One of the things that forms who you have in front of you is my mentor, Ron Deffenbaugh. I was a project manager originally and did, you know, estimating project management, et cetera, but I got tapped to do a role called quality manager. And at the time it was total quality method, TQM, and you got trained in business process improvement. You got trained in facilitating, but very much related to this episode uh, project alignment sessions. We call them project quality planning, but that and the strategic planning, you got trained in how to drop in front of a group of people, facilitate adult conversations in a corporate environment to get some outcome done. So I was so grateful for that. Spent 14 years there, went on, followed one of my other mentors, Charlie Bacon, to a mechanical firm for 10 years. And there I was deep in the lean application. We, I was so fortunate. I know we have a lot of friends that are Lean champions, et cetera. The private equity firm and Charlie, the CEO, wanted to implement lean throughout the business. They knew what it did for the other holdings. And I'd stepped right into a role where I got to, we did everything soup to nuts, looked at business process, 
worked with the guys in the shop, worked with guys in the field and absolutely loved that. I went on from there, did a multi-site construction with some of my friends, went back to my mentor, Ron Duffenbaugh at the seven uh, multi-site solutions, learned a lot about a totally different world in construction for me. Uh, I was used to vertical, big building uh, stuff. And now we're talking, you know, thousands of locations, Starbucks, McDonald's, uh, Walgreens, et cetera. And what that looks like, and, and if you think about it from a lean perspective, repetitive process, et cetera. And then finally started my own business. And I'll tell a story later, we'll get into it, but very much thanks to you and in a conversation we had at Congress last year, and I'll finish maybe today with that overall story. But, you know, I, I for years doing uh, project alignment sessions, architect, owner's rep would ask me, hey, that was really good. We have a problem with silos in our business. Can you come in and facilitate a session? And I always would be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Do it for free. Come in. And last year I realized I want to help as many, you know, you're at the, I'm 48, you're at the legacy part of your career. I want to help as many businesses as I can. And uh, while I loved helping one business and their clients, now it's time to spread the love. So that's what I'm doing. And I'll hopefully tell you a little bit more about how Felipe's role in that. But no, hopefully I'll well, make it happen. I'm going to ask yes. you questions. Yes. <laughs> so it will definitely happen. We should talk a little bit about how we first met. I think. Yeah. Was, so I can't remember. I think it was 2000. Or it was 16 or 17 Congress. 16. Yeah, so, Anaheim. If Anaheim is 16, that's when we first met. Yes. And I was assigned as your champion. I, I did not know you at all, but. I will say this, I have spent the last 30 years of my career in construction, and I, the best way I can say it is looking for kindred spirits, the people that are crazy enough to believe that we can change this industry, we can improve it, et cetera. That's Greg Howell had me hooked. The first time I met him, I was like, this guy great. I'm going with a big buyer, same way, uh, you know, just uh, on that journey. And so when you and I just, they, you know, met and I was assigned as your champion, I knew we were. Uh, brothers in arms, because I asked you, what's the, what do you want to do? I'm going to do what you're best in the enforcement and construction. And I was like, all right, cool, cool. Let's do it. Uh, you turned me on to Jeff Sutherland's twice the work and half the time. Red that. I was like, I'm on board. And then you said something to me. You said, I'm going to do a simulation, a real live simulation in doing a sprint in the room. And the facilitator part of my brain said, man, we're going to have like, uh, hopefully it's popular. It's, you know, 100, 200 people in the room. How the hell are you going to pull off? You know, a simulation, you said, don't worry, kid. I got it. And without, like, I just knew the spirit. I was like, oh, he's got it. Let's, uh, <laughs> this is going to be fun. Let's just roll. That, that was you and I first meeting, and I knew we were hooked at arms ever since then. And quite frankly, I'm glad I met you because I run my business on Trello. I have a sprint board. It's my personal life. It is my business all integrated into one. And it's got a sprint, it's got a flow. And if I didn't meet you, uh, I don't, none of that would have, you know, been in my life right now. So it was perfect. I super appreciate that, Kevin. So yeah, from my perspective, Kevin was my assigned champion. It was totally random how we got put together. And that was the first year at Anaheim. I was volunteering as the, just helping with the volunteers. So like I had responsibilities for Congress and I was speaking. It was the first time I was sharing scrum on quote unquote big stage. And we ended up having standing room only almost 200 people in the room. Mm -hmm. And we did a live within the span of less than 50 minutes. We had everybody go through one sprint together. And it's so funny people in the audience who went through that. I still know today. And at that one session, Kevin sparked off so many deep friendships that I have. One of the people that was in that room was Jason Schroeder from elevate oh. construction i know and like jason he told me he's like you don't remember this but i learned scrum from you and your lci presentation where you had us all do a sprint together and i was just like who wasn't in that room like so many people there were some leaders from some big mechanical contractors that work across the country that i bumped into on and off and so many people it's been incredible and like and then you and that that presentation also took me to ireland so like a lot of people don't know that, but we had, I was the champion for presenters in just before that session. And they were sharing about how they do very intentional gimbal walks in Ireland, doing work observation studies. And then I asked them to stick around and this is going to be interactive. Like, check this out. They stayed. And then that took me to Ireland the next year, the very next year. And I had four trips to Ireland teaching scrum and the last planner system in Ireland. And that's where I finally spent some quality time with uh, Glenn Ballard. Greg's, you know, yep. accomplished. 
And so like the first time I'm really hanging out with Glenn is in Ireland because of the session that you and I had in Anaheim, California. Wow. So it's like incredible. First off, it's a small world. I, I can't yeah. tell you how many people across, even before I got into lean, just across from a construction perspective that you'll be in an airport somewhere and just within two, to have a conversation and within two steps, you're like, oh my God, I, you know who so-and-so, et cetera. Yeah. It's, an, it's an unbelievable experience. It is amazing. Yeah, that was a great intro, Kevin. So glad that the fate put us together. We were talking just before the break. Oh, it looks like your mesh uh, froze up again. Let me look so serious. Make sure I look serious like you. I have no idea, bro. <laughs> yeah, I turned off the waiting room since you're going to be coming and going yeah, so yeah. much. I have no idea. And it actually, it's not worth it for me to get up and uh, check the router and stuff. But it'll, it might happen again. It just does a, it'll do a 30 second reset. It might be time to upgrade to the new version, but. But it was perfect timing. Like we finished yeah. your yep. face froze again, super serious. This time I did a pose. To match your expression. So we'll have two, two snips. <laughs> I love it. All right. So Kevin, at the beginning of the show, we were talking about, you know, how, and we're definitely kindred spirits. I mean, we were even talking offline. You, you bought your house and your wife didn't see it. I also bought my house here in California. My wife had not seen it. And I used uh, choosing by advantages to set up the right criteria to understand like what's important to her and my son. And this house scored so high. In the market time where we were buying, you had to make an offer within three hours of seeing the house or you weren't getting it. And it looks like the housing is going to be crazy again like that now. So yeah. my heart goes out to all the people looking to get a place and, and you're yeah. having trouble. You might want to consider choosing by advantage. Well, but before everybody else calls me crazy, I will say the houses I looked at, the list was curated by my wife. So I'm not that dumb to get yeah. put it shopping for houses or whatever. But yeah, it was just based on timing and I was down here for work and just needed to look and pull the trigger, just the same thing. So I think we lucked out. So. We have so much in common. And then I also, when, when you're talking about your introduction, when you were in school, I studied electrical engineering. I started off as a computer engineer and every chance I could take, I took classes as far away from engineering as possible. So I also studied Eastern philosophy. I also studied world religions. <laughs> so, and then I, I had the mandatory like four years of physics even changing majors, I feel like I got punished and I had to do extra physics classes. I liked the concepts, but I did not like the way the teaching of the physics happened. I love the labs. The labs were incredible. And the physicists I got to work with in undergraduate laboratories, it was really cool. We got to do a lot of cool stuff, but. So, Hey, I know you can cut this out, but here, listen, just a couple of other pieces on number one, when I thought I was doing really good in physics, I loved it. And then I signed up for an astrophysics course. I dropped that thing within the first week. I realized, oh my God, I am way out of my league. And here's the absolute funniest thing. I declared mechanical as the, as my coming in thing. The first class they had you take was computer programming. And believe it or not, except for a little bit of AutoCAD and drafting class, I had barely touched a computer. You know, I'm shot, you know, I grew up, graduated in 96 and 92 from high school. And I was like, no way, I'm out. The irony is number one, I wound up at a mechanical firm for a decade. And then number two, I know how to program in JavaScript. I know how to program in Fortran, JavaScript, you know, all that stuff. And I was avoiding it. And uh, I actually love it. I love programming. It's just that problem solving thing is a. Yeah. I stand by what I said, ladies and gentlemen, he's an engineer's engineer. <laughs> so like <laughs> I've had a couple of guests on the show that also have a passion for programming on the side and including Todd Henderson, who works full-time as an architect. So. You're in good company, yeah. Kevin, yeah. with show guests, but we, we talked at the beginning about being, you know, two sides of a coin, possibly when it comes to how teams are going to operate. And I think Kevin, it'd be worth you laying down some perspective because you have had some amazing experiences with facilitating, you know, quote unquote, parachuting into teams that are in trouble or trying to align. What can you tell people about, let's just start with the fear first so that they can get their head around this because they're probably not thinking about it, even if they're feeling it. Definitely, yeah. if you're feeling it at work, you're not going to think about it because that's just not the way it works. Well, we talk, I mean, uh, in the lean community, we talk a lot about psychological safety. I mean, that, you know, do, do your own research on that. You know, as a leader, if you can't provide psychological safety or your own behaviors are bringing down psychological safety, you're going to have a tough time getting the best you can out of people. But 
let's let's go back a step and let's define a couple of things and kind of level set on both fear and trust. So we at the opening of the show we talked a little bit about what fear looks like at as an individual. I mean, we just you know, it's just we're wired that way. I mean, you will create the worst case scenario in your own mind for a lot of different situations in life. It's a protective mechanism so that you can, you know, you're looking for survival, but you got to figure out how to get into that space of creative, you know, environment. And the only way to get to the creative space is to bring down the fear levels. Okay. There's a lot we can go into. You can meditate, you can do all sorts of stuff, but let's talk about teams. When people get into a team environment, the behaviors that we choose, and I'm going to use that word specifically, the behaviors that we choose together create an environment where either we're building up or we're actually oppressing and, and pushing down, right? And I, you know, I, I, for years, you know, and I've facilitated hundreds of sessions for different projects. It always is interesting to me. You have a group of people. So we all work for organizations, yes. And there are cultures within coming from the organizations that we work for, especially on the owner side, the culture that exists within that organization will definitely permeate the project. However, the leadership, the team that's together on that project, and I say this to teams all the time, how you act and behave together, you're in a closed environment. You're not a physically closed environment, but you're not, you get to choose how you are going to behave, how you're going to act. It doesn't matter what's coming up. Now that takes coming down from above. Yes, people can be pressing hard on schedules, deadlines, et, et cetera. And that's okay. We need the pressure cooker in order to get great things done. But if fear is coming with it, a strong leadership team, and it, and it takes just one on a project, but it's a hell of a lot better if, you know, the leaders from the main stools, you know, owner work to CM, trades, the leaders can create an umbrella and go, not on this project. This project, we're going to create an environment where we treat each other this way. And you lay down the, the rules of, the conditions of satisfaction. Yes, in terms of what we're going to achieve, but the rules of behavior about how we're going to operate is a choice. I, it's tough for people to hear that, but it, it's a choice about that the people that come together to build a project make. And you either do it intentionally or you don't. And here's what happens. No matter what, we're going to be faced with challenges. All projects are. Once a little bit of water gets under the bridge, if you haven't spent some time intentionally defining what that trust environment looks like, and we'll get into, you know, the trust definitions and what to do there in a minute. But if you haven't intentionally spent the time there, what happens is the problems come up and don't care who you are, don't care, you know, best intentions. We all retreat back to the traditional industry corners of, oh, I see where this is going. And people pull up the rifles go and start pop fire and shots, you know, across the room saying, no, that's not our fault, et cetera. And, and it just triggers the behavior. And if you don't intentionally build something ahead of that, it's just going to go that route. It's just, you know, human nature. So that's one aspect we're talking a little bit about here. Let's define trust. I, I love, uh, I got two definitions that I use, both kind of cubby related, but let, let's start with the two factors of trust. So you and I are working together. There's two main factors. One's character and one's competency. So I know Felipe and I would trust Felipe with anything. I trust him with my kids. That's the character uh, element. I, you know, I fully try. I know you have the best intentions for me personally in your mind. You might be able to or not be able to, you know, deliver on that because of circumstances. But I know in your heart, you've got that. That's really character trust. There are the inverse of that. You'll get into a situation, an environment where you'll meet somebody and you'll be like, I don't trust that. I don't trust that character, you know, et cetera. The second dynamic of that is competency. So it's, you have the skills and the capability to deliver what I'm asking. Okay, so it, big in the last planner world is the ability to make a commitment. So when somebody says, hey, by next Thursday. So we, we've, we, you know, we're talking about the two dynamics. We've got the character one, which is I trust that you're going to do, or you've got my best intentions in mind. And that second one is competency. And we talk about that all the time in, in the last planner system. If somebody makes a commitment, we want to know that they're going to deliver on the commitment. That I'll be out of that area by Thursday or on a broader context of a project. We'll have those drawings, you know, delivered by this date, um, et cetera. That's a competency thing. We believe when somebody says something or don't believe that they'll actually get it done. So that's, that's two important factors to just head into every relationship with. You got to quickly decide 
is this a person I can trust based on character? And then we all, you don't know this right off the gate, but we all can assess, hey, is there competency that we can trust one another and, and get the right things done? That's one factor definition of trust. The second one that I absolutely love, have used, I was looking for my card. I, I was trained, you know, 20 years ago, there's a Franklin Covey card that has the traditional quadrants of important, not urgent, but on the back, it has the trust bank account, which is deposits and withdrawals from the trust bank account. Now, what I love about that is it trust, it turns the word trust from a, a noun into a verb, which is you, it's, this is just like a, any relationship, marriage, et cetera. You can make a ton of withdrawals over time and understand that at some point you might break the bank account. You might go into a deficit, et cetera. So we got to find ways together as individuals. Obviously we could talk about relationships, but let's just focus on projects. You got to find ways to make deposits really Delivering on your commitments, that's a pretty easy one, but treating people with respect, having some rules of conduct about, we won't talk about someone that's not in the room. We, we will honor and respect the people on this project. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. We'll have to have hard conversations, but that kind of uh, setting of the tone, it, it helps everybody. That's the kind of things that bring, like we talked about before, psychological safety into the picture and let people create an environment. So I really love the definition of trust as a verb that, that works as a team. I do too. We absolutely have to put that into practice. And you and I as facilitators are always on the lookout for how to do that. We, I recently led a, a 16 person call. Uh, it was a virtual call. So people were coming in with teams. And I said at the beginning, we had a safety moment and I made the safety moment, psychological safety. And I demonstrated with a real example of how we put it into practice. And I said, for these calls, this is going to be a recurring call like every other month. I said, for this group, for these calls, I will own creating this psychologically safe environment. We're not recording the meeting on purpose. So we can have real deep conversations. And I said, there'd be no titles here but we're going to allow everybody to do introductions and tell us who you are and you can't help yourself. And construction teams, Kevin, if you tell people, no matter what your icebreaker is, half the people tell you their title, no matter what, because they're so programmed mm -hmm. to have to tell uh, you what identity. They, they've, they've created an identity. Your ego exactly. is pretty tightly. And then I, I said to the person, I said, people are going to show up late to this meeting because it's just the nature of, of a virtual meeting when you got people calling in from across the country. I said, when people come in, they're going to come into some very heavy conversation. So when, as soon as you finish your sentence, if you're the active speaker, I'm going to interrupt you respectfully, let that person introduce themselves and tell them where we are in the dialogue. And then you're, I'm going to come back to you and you're just going to pick it right up. And everybody was like, okay. And then it happened four times in the meeting. And the last person that interrupted came in five minutes to the meeting ended. And so consistently I demonstrated, I'm going to do this every time. And so it built a high level of trust with the people and the sharing went extreme. We hear all the time that building enclosure is the number one problem in construction. And when the task of the building enclosure is presented with so much pressure, it's something most of us would want to avoid. Until now, there has never been a course to teach someone how to manage a building enclosure. Building enclosure is a problem for every company, and the solution is often to ask someone within to try to find training or provide training to their teams to avoid these issues. Field Verified's Enclosure Management course is the answer to that problem. We learned the hard way, we've learned through failure, we've learned from others. This course, our team will help those people who are assigned to manage the building enclosure be successful the first time so that they're spared some of the suffering and hardships that all of us went through. There's so much opportunity for a high return on investment, not just when an individual attends and all of the skills that they'll achieve, but when a team participates together, they can raise their level of performance by knowing what each other can do, what to expect, and they can raise the level of performance of that company as their careers excel and the company elevates along with them. The training is built on the science of how people learn. We capture all of the components that are necessary to master a skill. There's a hands-on component to the training where we're building a masonry mock-up, a metal panel mock-up, we're doing EFIS, and even installing a window that later you get to test. The hands-on training gives us the opportunity to translate the lines on paper to actual construction in the field. 
We always laugh because after the training, people come up and say, you know, this isn't just about building enclosure. There's a lot of leadership in here. There are a lot of people skills. That's because those skills are necessary to be successful in building enclosure and in construction. We'd love to see you get started right away. We have lots of options available. They can come to us in person at Field Verified in Phoenix, or we can bring the entire operation to your facility and train up to 25 people at a time. And we've created an online training that's available for people who might not be able to attend in person. Go to the website and contact us. We're gonna start by understanding what problems you're currently experiencing and develop a specific program that's right for the needs of your company. But okay. I was so leaning in because I wanted to say this icebreakers. When I got trained early on as a facilitator, you know, you, there was a basic set of tools for any meeting that you got trained and, you know, having a purpose agenda limit, you know, uh, you know, all of the rules of conduct, the parking lot, the plus Delta, all that stuff. But icebreaker was always in. And when I was really young, I didn't understand the necessary value of it, but I got a great training in that because I was facilitating so many sessions. Without mentioning any names or any individuals, I had one executive leader who I would was facilitating project sessions for in New York that every time like we'd go through the agenda, he'd be like, all right, get rid of the icebreaker. We don't need the icebreaker. So what it did for me was in par I was doing, I, it was a little experiment that I couldn't even have, you know, put together myself. I facilitated a bunch of sessions on that side without icebreakers. And at the same time, I was facilitating other sessions with icebreakers. The difference is amazing the the it's such a small investment to make up front um overall and then you can also think a lot about the questions that you ask and what you and i'll get more into that but yeah. you got to get to know one another um on a project and that goes right back to the trust and uh, fear and safety thing if you can ask some really open-ended you know good questions that allow people to understand hey you coach soccer too, or your kid has ADHD. I'm struggling with that. You know, same thing. It takes us as a group of individuals, removes the barriers of the identification of the companies that we work with and creates commonality in, in terms of other dynamics or aspects of what we have going on in our personal lives. And to be honest with you, I have heard some stories that have almost literally, I've like broke my heart crying in terms of challenges and struggles that people have gone through and it that's the kind of stuff that if you don't share up front we don't know each other how are we gonna how are we gonna reach it how are we gonna how are we gonna really go and get something big for an overall project if we don't know how to cover down for each other and you just said that you know that executive in new york made that beautiful contrast so you can see the you know what happens when you do and what happens when you don't I, can you go deeper on what happens like what contrast what did you learn from that if you get to know people across the table, it creates, there's an underlying tone that it creates in the room. And we talked about, you know, it brings down the silos of, I work for an architect, you work for a GC, you're, I'm an owner. These are the ways we were supposed to behave. When you create commonality across the room, it creates an environment where we can actually have real conversations. And what happens, so, and I'll, I'll give you another dynamic later from a facilitation perspective, that the quality of discussion, the, the, the digging for potential opportunities and answers, the, the way that we approach problem solving in the room during a session is qualitatively different. If you don't do the icebreakers, we are effectively rushing our way through an agenda. If you, if you sit in a meeting that's not facilitated well, or people don't come with the clear objectives in mind, et cetera, it, it doesn't have the generate something of substance for whatever that it is that uh, you're coming to do. It's literally a report out meeting and we're all wasting each other's time in that instance. So that, that's one dynamic uh, overall that it, just do the icebreaker. It, it, it really sets the tone. And the other thing I learned comes from EOS as well. It's, they call it the segue. It, it actually uh, mentally gives, everybody's coming into that meeting. Most of us, you mentioned before, people coming in late, most of us with whatever the heck you know, and especially in the Zoom days, if you're back-to-back -back calls, your brain doesn't shut off the last topic. You're coming into a meeting carrying every, that last discussion you had with you. And the, the purpose or another aspect of the icebreaker is it gives a mental pause around the room and for everybody to let go of whatever the heck they were just, you know, engaged in. And then for everybody to sit down, say hello, get 
focused on what we're about to do. So it, it's got uh, multiple purposes. And shoot, if you're going to spend two years with people, why not get to know them? And, and, and that's aspect. I think the other thing I was going to say too is one very small thing, and I know it takes budget, but one very small thing that I always tell teams is break bread together. You cannot underestimate the value of, you know, lunch is okay. Dinner's even better. If you're going to get together, I always tell people if I'm facilitating a, two, a full day session, I would much rather do afternoon, a dinner, and then the morning after. Because at dinner, you create a social lubricant and you see the topic, you create this social lubricant, people get to know one another, and then you come back that next morning and people have fresh ideas. People are are connected to each other and connected to the topic in a way that uh, makes it that much more meaningful. Not everybody can do that, but I will tell everyone, if you're not breaking bread together, you're missing a huge opportunity. So no truer words said. It's like the first time I met Jeff Sutherland in real life, we had a, it's a two day training. It was train all day with him. And so I had to get over the, oh my God, it's Jeff Sutherland. So that, that was the whole first eight hours, right? And then we broke bread together. And we actually got to sit next to each other and have a really good conversation, to, even to the point, Kevin, where I felt bad for the other people. And I even told Jeff, I was like, you should probably talk to some of the other people too. <laughs> but we just couldn't stop gabbing. Like, and then the next day we were like totally cool. And he became forever my mentor, which has yeah. been awesome. So there's a huge power to breaking bread. Like there's things and insights that, that we talked about during that dinner that never would have happened. And the next day, the entire class was super energized. And that's just one example. We, I recently was, you know, this is perfect timing, Kevin. I'm facilitating a session where the team says, and I won't say when, I mean, it's just sometime in the recent past, the team says, we're going to bring you in as an independent facilitator to help us with the pull plan, a last planner system implementation on an integrated project. And they said, I asked them like, how well does the team know each other? Oh, we've worked with each other for six months. We're fine. We don't need an icebreaker. And I said, okay, like, how good is your planning conversations? They're great. I was like, doubt it. I looked at their plan. It's good. It's a good month, maybe two months behind schedule, but they say it's great. Right. So we, I come into the session and they've removed all the chairs to, to, cause they know that if people stand up, it's going to go faster. And they're thinking speed mm -hmm. is what they want. Mm -hmm. Speed is not what they want. What they want is high reliability and commitment. And then I, I got a sense I'm standing in the room at the front. It's a huge conference room with no chairs, no chairs. Where do you think the people were standing? Back up against the wall at the cor in corners. <laughs> as far away from each other as possible. It was hilarious. Like you would have thought it, that COVID was happening right now. Like the, this was the first day after COVID was announced. People were created like eight foot apart, but they were all standing in their own companies. And so the yeah. GC was over here. Design team was here. Owner team was here. Trades were on the fringe edges. And I said, okay, you all told me not to do an icebreaker. As a facilitator, we're going to pivot and we're going to do it. Something's wrong with the level of trust here. And so we, I exposed the agenda. I said, if anyone wants to make a change to this, I'm open right now. I didn't introduce who I was yet. And I'm just already changing things for their benefit. So that's what I said. I was like, this is for your benefit, I think, based on my experience and why you brought me here. And then we did the icebreaker and people came together. So like it was instant. And this was a team that allegedly had been working together for six months. And we heard things like you said, in the icebreaker, some, it wasn't like break your heart. Cause the question I asked them, here's one icebreaker topic. And this is only, I chose this on the fly because they claim to be experts at this type of project delivery. And a lot of times when you're coming together for the first time, it's the first time. It doesn't matter if you've done this job, like it could be like 25 different design build jobs. No, this is this team's first design build job ever. And people forget that. And so I asked people thinking about the last job that you did, what is something that happened that you would love to happen again on this job? And so people went deep and they went like why it was, why they picked it, what it was. And it was human. It was, nobody said like, we made like, 20% profit or, you know, my company got to do this and I got a $2 bonus, you know, none of that business stuff. It was all human, yeah, like yeah. superhuman, 
very personal. And people were like, after every single person, Kevin, they were surprised. Every person was surprised by the, they've been working together for six months and they're like, oh, wow, I, I had no idea that was important to you. Or I had no idea that was a value to you. So that's a good icebreaker. What's uh, what's one question that you use sometimes? Uh, I got to give oh, a couple of things. I got to give credit to other people, but I, I do use if it, it depends if it's a project team. I do some uh, leadership team facilitation and stuff like that. I do like I, there's a simple personal histories exercise one that is like what town raised you, you know, and this is an interesting question. Like who what what formed? the person we have in front of us. And you get a wide variety of yeah. questions, uh, answers to that. You have military brats that had to move all over the place and it formed somebody that could drop into any situation, make friends, uh, stuff like that. Great question. Number two, do you have siblings and where in the birth order are you? It, it just like yeah. somehow you get, oh, you're the first, yeah. you're an only child. You're the first child. You're the middle child. You're one of 10. You are. <laughs> Yeah, you, fro right. you froze again at the one at 10, you froze and now you're frozen again. That one's not, that one definitely didn't break out again. <laughs> oh, great. You're like one of 10. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just to ask that question and, and find out about that, you, you learn something about one another. Oh man. Oh, yeah, okay. Absolutely do. No, we're, so, not, we're not frozen. We're good. Okay. So, you know, so, so the, here's the, so there's two other questions in that sequence. First job, worst job. Tell me about the first job that you ever got paid, you know, for, and then tell me about your worst job because the worst job question starts to get into character and some of the things that you do and don't like, or the environments that, you know, is not, you knew it wasn't a right environment, et cetera. Sometimes you mentioned before I, I use best project, worst project, but now I've realized that you better just ask the question one way and why not ask it the positive way? That's what uh, you were saying before. Tell me about your best project experience. Because if you ask best, pro worst project, people just inverse, you know, what it was. And why is the other question that, that you got to get dig into. Yeah. Um, and I tell people, if you don't answer the question, I'm going to stop at you. And I, because I was standing up, I literally would walk to them. And I had them do it in silence too. I had everybody write it down and put it on a tag so that the extroverts or the, the loud voices wouldn't dominate and gives everybody a chance to pause yeah. and write. And as a facilitator for people listening, when you allow people the space to write, you disengage their fast brain and then you get a more holistic answer from them. So I modulate between quick answers, verbal, and then written answers. Yeah. If, if there's a higher cognitive load, like and the questions you asked about exposing and being vulnerable, that's a higher cognitive load than a yes or no question. So those all tend to force people to write down first and then go one by one. <laughs> or if I'm doing condition satisfaction, we can always do categories faster and do some clumping as a team and still have people say what they wrote. So th there's definitely some things to, to modulate on. So I think that if you're in meetings and you think, you know, your team, if you can't answer the question, like Kevin opened this up and said, I would trust Felipe with my kids. And likewise, I would trust Kevin with my kids, my one son. I think my son would love hanging out with you, Kevin, especially now that he's, he's gone horseback riding for the first time a week ago. And he's just like, this is the craziest thing ever. You know? So I think he would love to spend some time with you and send him, <laughs> send him down and send him down. But, but if you can't, him. but right, Kevin, if you can't answer that about people you work with that you've been day in and day out, eight hours a day, sometimes 12 hours a day, if you can't answer those questions, like, would I let my kid be here? You're really slowing down how yeah. you can get things done. So two, two, I, I want to pick up on two other things that you said. Okay. But, and I, I realize in my own mind now that I got trained in facilitation. So there's stuff that's like in the back of my head that I, I just assume everybody knows, but you mentioned something before that was, you know, groups forming clicks that they get within their circle. I mean, the one simple facilitation tool that if you look at the setup of the room, it could be U-shaped, whatever, assign seating and mix it up. I mean. That's a no brainer. It changes the dynamic of the room. It actually, there's no us versus you. There's this kind of cross dialogue. Another one I got to give credit to Matt Bleakley for. I visited him at the Star Wars. He was from Waiting Turner. They were building the Star Wars world in, in Orlando. And he had put, he, he was tired of, you know, people at, in pool planning sessions and weekly work planning sessions, sitting in opposite corners, arms folded, et cetera. He took red tape and put it on the floor right up in front. 
of where they do their planning. And that's another great aspect. They use visual tools. So they had slip sheets. They realized that most of the foremen are thinking off of their shop drawings. So they said, why don't we just put the shop drawings up instead of doing like, you know, our traditional weekly work plan in Excel. Let's do it visually. They can highlight the areas that they're going to be working when the guys are going to be out, et cetera. Fantastic idea. That's when most of us in construction think in 3D, not in a, a tabular list, et cetera. Not but words. Yeah. He put yeah. that paper on the floor and forced everybody inside and said, if you're part of the next week's work, you're going to talk. You're going to talk to each other about what we're doing. If you're not part of next week's work or you're here to gather information, it's okay to be on the outside of the red tape. You're here to gather information, but we're going to, we're going to participate. And the other thing I loved is he hung a, a mural, more mobile. I don't know. We remember when you were a kid and yeah. it was where you cribbed um, well, and it yeah. had the, the words he didn't want to hear. I can't, I, maybe, you know, the non-committal words of I'll try, you yeah. know, et cetera. And it was like, we don't want to, and they had a little extra. It was like, we don't want to hear those. We want to hear, I, I can't deliver that, but if you do this, I, you know, might make it the yes, but, or closer to us making that commitment. So I, I loved all those things. One other thing I want to say, one other thing I tripped my mind on, and just in terms of how we come together as project teams, I facilitated a session really early in my career and the architect was from London and he had a fantastic definition. When I asked, you know, tell me about, we were talking about best projects. His definition of a good project was at the end of the, he said, anybody can share a pint at the beginning of the project. He said, the good projects are the ones where you want to share a pipe with those individuals at the end of the project. And that means we've done our job in terms of creating a bond, you know, doing something challenging, but taking the opportunity to create a bond that will last beyond the confines of this project. And I think that's a, that what for me, was always a good definition of how do we do this? How do we come together in, in a way that is respectful of one another and we create we're, we're only on this planet for so long. Why would you want to <laughs> be uh, creating environments where we're just fighting with one another? Let's find a way to get cool things done um, together. Absolutely. Love that. That's a great definition. And yeah. even take it next level. Would you be willing to buy the person across the table a pint? That's how yeah. well the project was. So just sharing one. I mean, definitely you just charge it to the owner because the owner pays for everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love the Stephen Covey Trust Bank and Franklin Covey Trust Bank. I didn't realize that Stephen borrowed that from his dad. And that when he wrote The Speed of Trust, which is a great book to read, it talks about the character and competency. I love that as well. And I had a, a superintendent give me that book as a gift when I came to the project one day. He's like, for all the stuff you do with people, you should read this. It'll give you an advantage. And I was just like, oh, superintendent helping me get an advantage. I just love that. I hope by this point, you're getting some great ideas from Kevin. Kevin is an outstanding resource. So again, Check the show notes to get a hold of him. He's super easy to talk to, very approachable. I definitely have relied on Kevin multiple times. I got to benefit from his leadership and stewardship when he was hosting Lean, Con Lean Construction in Orlando, Florida, which was an amazing Congress. That's a lot of cool people came to that one. Still one of the highlights tops. Now, if you're on a project right now and you've got these issues, Kevin, what are some things that people can do to build trust? and then keep the trust they built. Yeah. So we talked before about the deposits and withdrawals. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. The, the other thing I'd, I'd point to, and, and I got to give credit to the folks at Lend-Lease that I you know, grew up with there. There was a process that we use called project quality planning. One of the tools, it's very much Covey-based, we would form a win matrix at the beginning of a project. And, and we'd ask all of the key stakeholders three questions. The three questions were, what's your definition of success? So that's the traditional conditions of satisfaction. Right. And what I love about that is you can ask that question, you know, to all the stakeholders, you'll get the commonalities, and then you'll also get the very specific, unique things that are meaningful to them in terms of delivering a successful project. Super important on the owner side, you got to understand value creation and value delivery, but it's just as important to hear from every other player. And one of the sessions I did at OSU uh, years ago, we had all the trades in the room. I think it was like 200 people. We were doing a, a project kickoff session. And one of the, the carpenter got up and he said, um, here's my definition of success or really laying out. He said, I, I know everybody might not process this. He said, when 
the people that I work with, the people that are in the field building things are doing it because they love working with their hands. They want to build a quality product. When you, so I might ask of you, my definition of success is be clear about what you want and don't change your mind. Because when a craftsman builds something and then you change your mind and you, they have to tear it down. You said, we'll get a change order. I know you're, you know, we'll get paid for that. But for the craftsman who built that to tear it back down is a morale buster. It, you put your heart and soul into putting the right thing and make it plumb, make it level, et cetera. He's like, you gotta, we gotta figure out a way for you to be clear about what you want earlier on in the process. And I thought that was a good, that's a good subtle definition of a condition of success that we don't ask enough and we don't think about. So that's question number one. Question number two we asked all stakeholders is what's your role in, if that's your definition of success, what's your role and responsibility in delivering that success? Um, For all the people watching the show, like this has just been incredible. Kevin's internet has gone out no less than seven times to up to this point. So if you're watching to now, it's just a testament to how magical editing is that you don't even notice that we've had seven major three to five minute interruptions (laughs) to this point. So I want to go back, Kevin, you gave us question two, and I think question two is, I've never heard that before in condition satisfaction. We always ask people, what do you need to be satisfied? And then you said, question two follow-up is what's your role responsibility yeah. to make sure that happens? I love that. And I'm dying. What is question three? Dying. Question number, no, here's question number three is the, the absolutely most important one. So if, so we talked about question two, you're going to shake out the gaps and the overlaps of who's got the ball and stuff like that for roles and responsibility. Question number three, for each stakeholder. So if you're the owner and you're looking across the table at the GC construction manager, the architect engineer, trade partners, et cetera, separately for each of those groups, you go, here's what I need and expect from you. In order for me to do my job really well, here's what I need and expect from you. Yeah, that's super powerful. I've not done that yet, Kevin, but I'm stealing that. Oh, oh, and and from a facilitation standpoint, don't let them, you got to dig, you know, so if somebody says, I need quick turnaround times on RFIs, then you ask, well, what's quick? What's your definition of quick? And that those conversations early and upfront on the project are basically setting the stage for, we know challenges are going to come up and we're having a preemptive conversation about the ways that we're going to deal with them. And that kind of understanding of how you're going to lock arms together, what do you need from one another to be successful um, is, is really strong. So th- those three things make up what we call the win matrix. It's literally a matrix, success factors across the top, roles and responsibilities down along the side, and then the intersection of the, the stakeholder. So owner needs from GC, that intersection spot in the matrix tells you that's your rules of play, if you will from a project perspective, but here's the process part. Here's the best part. Very good to have that conversation up front. That's a healthy discussion to have for projects. You have to follow up. And so what we would do is every 60, 90 days, it depends on how long, if it's a short, you know, hit project one year, you'll do it every 30, 45 days. But beyond that 60, 90 days, you let steam off the valve. You get back together. You bring out those needs and expectations. You rate them on a score of one to five. One is, you know, failing to meet the expectation. You know, all it goes up through the scale. Five is exceeding. And I would tell teams, hey, anything four or below, below four, four was, you know, you're doing good. You're meeting it. You have to give a recommendation for improvement. We're triggering the conversation of things are not going as I had, you know, told you I needed to. Here's what you might do in order to make that better and have a dialogue around that. Just letting that steam off the valve every 60, 90 days acknowledges the fact that everything's not going to go perfectly, acknowledges the fact that we talked the fear-based response earlier on. We might get be getting ourselves into a loop as a project. It gives us a, an opportunity to take a, you know, a temperature check every once in a while. So that's a key element to the overall process. And then what we would do at the end of a project, it's, you know, being a continuous improvement guy when I learned from the whole experience. And so we do a, a project session at, session at the end where you break out the success factors and you go, Hey, did we accomplish the mission score of one to 10? You know, did we meet the, the need to, especially did we deliver value for the owner? And then, Oh, by the way, this is your, it goes back to your icebreaker. 
what do we want? What would we all want to carry forward from this experience? Either because we learned a bad, we, we, we had a, some logistic challenge and we should never have that happen again. We're going to learn from it. Or we did, we knocked the ball out of the park on this element. And if I could just take that with me and have that happen for the next project, um, I, I would love that. And that's a great capstone. Most people, you know, the last experience on the project is the punch list or trying to get out of it and um, move on to the next project. And if you don't celebrate, well, you know, then you're missing the opportunity. So that that's that entire process in a nutshell of, of defining win agreements and then managing the win agreements throughout the life of a project. So I love that, Kevin. And I want to take you to the dark side now. So you described a great scenario. We're carrying the lessons forward. This is all screaming lean construction, best practices of all freaking time. And this is like one of the greatest facilitation tips and tricks episode we've ever had, but let's go dark. And you realize the wheels are falling off the bus. Okay. But a couple, number one, if you, I know people like me, Jeff Creighton, you know, does the project session. We were talking about this the other day. There are times when I got called into a project where they said, Hey, we were supposed to do one of those project planning, you know, things, but we didn't. And it's, we need it. We need it now. Called into a project and they said, Hey, same thing. You know, we're halfway through. This is terrible. You know, you, you got to come in and do this. So there was bad dynamic, bad people had gotten to the non-trust in the corner thing that we were talking about. And I did an icebreak and I asked, you know, what is one thing that nobody knows about you in the room? So we were going around the room and I let, sometimes I let the leader of the overall thing go last, you know, there's a dynamic that goes with that. So the CEO of the hospital, she knew the dynamic and then she launched it. She said, here's the deal. We're at where we're at right now on the basis of some behaviors that we all let go on. And we need to interrupt. We need to remind ourselves of why we're here, what we're doing. So she used that particular comment in order to stop the brains from immediately just going down the path that they were on and took a step back and said, let's remind ourselves what's really important here. We're trying to save people's lives. You are the professionals that we brought around to help do that. And we're choosing to interact in a way that's not getting us the results that we want. So, and sometimes you got to do that. Sometimes you got to take a step back as a group and say, this, what we're doing is not serving us. Let's have a discussion. And it's never too late. I honestly, I've done multiple projects where that same conversation, I just did one uh, for a friend at another company midway through a project. And it was like, let's just take a step back. Let's understand where, what are some of the lessons learned of the first six months, the first year of the project? And let's use them. Let's acknowledge them, but let's use them and, and try to understand the way that we can work together. I did a session that started in January and we did a follow-up. The team, you know, the team identified some behavioral issues and they identified some opportunities and they, they took those opportunities. Anybody that's been on a turnaround project knows that you can get there. And, uh, you know, I'll go right back to the share a pint thing. You can get there in a way that's just stress and, you know, we don't want to see each other at the end, or you can see it as an opportunity and a challenge for human beings to come together, you know, do something great and, and still be respectful of one another along the way. Just take that pause and bring yourself back and analyze. And then there's the basic quality management tools, which is effectively you got into this situation pretty much because of a systemic thing. Let's take a look at some of the root causes that are going on here. Is it how we conduct our meetings? Is it how we share information? Is it, you know, et cetera. So you can dig in a little bit deeper and scratch the surface. You should always, but that's my advice. I love that advice. Now, Kevin, I want to super much appreciate, thank you for that story and insight. And I want to give you the last words on, you know, what are some things that people can take away? It's, you know, whatever day they're listening to this, first of all, thank you for subscribing and listening to the show. We're in celebrating over four years of podcasting. It's incredible. And I'm so honored to have guests that, your caliber on the show every single time, but what are some things that you can give people as they're listening to the end of the show that they could take forward and implement on their project? Either if it's, you know, if it's morning, you're listening to this right now today or the next day at work. We started with the fact that fear is in, you know, fear is very much inside of you and an in individual thing. So if you're not taking a moment to check with yourself and say, am I operating and responding out of fear? Or am I operating and responding out of an op opportunity um, to do something? So you got to have the wherewithal to check in on yourself. You know, there's tons of stuff you can do. I mean, that's not the point of this show, but 
check with yourself first. That that's really you're, you're one individual coming to a project, and you how you choose to show up, believe it or not, makes a big difference overall. the The second aspect is get to know the people you're working with, both professionally and personally. Professional, obviously, you're going to start with, but you're only on a project for a short period of time together. You, you know, find out the things that are you know, in, in a person's back, their, their personal histories, the similarities, the differences, you know, have that dialogue, have that conversation. And I think you'll find that you'll all get something uh, more out of it. And then the third thing goes right back to that when matrix, in order for us to do things together, we've got to understand what it is that uh, we need from one another. And from a systems and process perspective, how are we actually going to deliver upon our conditions of satisfaction, have that dialogue up front. And then uh, my favorite is check in. Let's steam off the valve every 60 to 90 days. That's just like any other relationship you have. If you don't check in periodically, you will let things go unsaid, or you might not even notice that there's a gap forming in some part of the execution. And so let's take the opportunity to check in. Yeah. Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build. <laughs>